I wanted uh, to see Mugen. And what I saw there, I wish I would never see it. Uh. That's Nelson Mandela telling me about what became known as the Sebekeng Massacre in January 1991, where 30 residents of that black township were slaughtered by the South African police. Mandela believed that F.W. de Klerk, the white president of apartheid South Africa, and the man that Mandela was negotiating with about the country's future, knew more about that atrocity than he was willing to say. Apart from the bodies in the mortuary, lacerated, mm. killed, uh, you know, shot, mutilated, and so on. And a woman uh, shot and killed, and then her breast was cut. You could see that uh, these were animals. I went up to the clerk, and I said, uh, you were informed, the government was informed of this attack, this pending attack, asked to prevent people from entering uh, armed. The attack took place during the daylight. Why is it, and 32 people were killed, why is it that nobody has been arrested? News never stops, but books have deadlines. Especially books where the publisher has paid several million dollars to the subject, and the subject was about to start running for the presidency of his country. I knew I had to get the manuscript in by the spring of 1994. In my mind, I thought I needed to finish my interviews by June of 1993, so I would have about nine months to finish the manuscript. And that was pushing it. Plus, I knew Mandela was about to begin campaigning. He wanted to have the book out of the way by then. That was pretty ambitious. I had started the interview process a year and a half earlier by asking him about his time in prison. Those were the lesser-known years of Mandela's life. God forbid something were to happen to him, I'd at least know I had covered the prison years. But for him, every day brought some new turn of events that could alter his life and the life of his country. In any country, when 32 people have been killed, the head of state would immediately make a statement expressing his sympathy to the next of kin and calling for the arrest of these people. Why have you not done so? He just had no answer at all. That was Nelson Mandela, a man with no office, a man who still could not vote in his own country, recalling what he said to the South African state president, F.W. de Klerk, about the killings at Sebekeng. It's not a pleasant experience to be the subject of Mandela's ire. We were living in dangerous times. Now, in the spring of 1993, I knew I had only a few weeks left of formal interviews before I was scheduled to return to New York. One of the balancing acts we had to perform was that while we were talking about his growing up, or being in prison, or his early years in the ANC, he was negotiating in real time with the government about elections and the Constitution. There was also the almost daily orgy of violence that Mandela believed was being orchestrated by a shadowy right-wing force that seemed bent on tipping the country into civil war. Journalists called it the third force. Until the last few weeks of our interviews, I avoided formally asking him about anything going on in the streets and the country around us. I knew that's what he wanted. 
But as I was getting near the end, I knew I had to start asking him questions about those things. He was hesitant to talk about what was going on. I got that. He didn't want leaks. He was sharing things with me he did not always share with his colleagues. He didn't know how things would turn out. He was living history. We were living history. So you have to be careful, especially in my own autobiography. I had left some difficult questions for the end. Questions I knew he would be irritated by. But they were things I thought should be in the book. I don't know how we deal with that because uh, it's a sensitive matter. Some of the questions were about the current negotiations, but some of them were about the difficult and controversial figures he had dealt with. I'm not only talking about President de Klerk and Zulu leader Gachabutalezi. I'm talking about Muammar Gaddafi, the dictator of Libya, and Fidel Castro, the dictator of Cuba. In the latter two cases, I knew it would be tricky because we had bickered about them before. Mandela was a pragmatist, but he was also influenced by a sense of loyalty and of gratitude. Who had been there for him and who hadn't? I knew the discussion of Gaddafi and Castro could get testy because I had privately talked to him about them, and it hadn't gone well. In the Western media, Gaddafi was portrayed as a madman who aided and abetted terrorism. Castro was painted as a communist authoritarian oppressing his own people. Mandela had a different view. He saw them as loyal comrades in a global struggle against oppression. Gaddafi is to me one of our greatest heroes. He has been able to change the style of the living standards of the people in Libya. He is living in a simple way, simple manner. I like a leader like that. What about the view of him in the West uh, as a as someone who's slightly crazy, someone who supports terrorist movements around the world? Were there people advising you saying you shouldn't be too friendly with Gaddafi because it wouldn't look good in the Western world? Gaddafi is concerned with assisting oppressed people throughout the world to gain their liberation, something that is not being done by the Western powers. Mm-hmm. And uh, the oppressive regimes automatically receive support from many Western countries. And the role of Gaddafi has been to use his resources to help people to gain their freedom. From that angle, I have a lot of sympathy for him. I think if I hadn't framed the question about Gaddafi in relation to the West, he might have answered it differently. He didn't like pressure from the outside on his decisions. He still resented the fact that America and England and the European powers did not help him when he needed it. Gaddafi is one of those uh, leaders who looked after my family when I was in jail. I sent money to win and gave a prize, and the first prize of uh, 
$250,000 was given to, to me, Human Rights Award was given to me. And before I, 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 I came out of prison. When did that connection begin with Kadat? Well, I can't remember now, but I think it was uh, in the 70s when my wife was really under persecution. And I think this is the, one of the things that made him support the family. Mandela appreciated loyalty. There were many times during the interviews when he was remembering someone from prison or before, and he would say, man, I must get in touch with so-and-so to thank him. I remember once when we were walking, I expressed some skepticism about his alliance with Gaddafi. His reaction was immediate and a little angry. He stopped and wagged a finger at me and said, your Western views of Gaddafi are not mine and I am not going to bend my views of him because of Western thinking. It was one of the few times he got cross with me. Mandela was a practical revolutionary. He allied himself with Gaddafi in large part because they were willing to help him at a time when most Western leaders would not. And uh, naturally, I have got reservations about certain aspects of his policy. I wouldn't like, you know, terrorism to be carried on inside independent countries, you know, like Europe, Africa, that type of thing. But uh, to help and liberation movements throughout the world, that is something which I regard as positively good. At the same time, when the West was willing to support him, he willingly accepted that too. The Berlin Wall fell in 1989. The Soviet Union was dissolved in 1991, the same year as Mandela's release. I was talking to him in 1993. Was that the, the fall of the Berlin Wall and the changes in Eastern Europe? Did that affect the ANC in terms of fundraising and support at a critical time? Not really. The change in the governments and the fall of the parties, communist parties, which had been foremost in supplying us with uh, arms. Of course, that brought about a change. But uh, there was no ideological connection between the ANC and the communist parties of the Soviet Union or any other Mm -hmm. uh, country. But it did change the way the West approached South Africa. Until the fall of the Berlin Wall, the U.S. and other Western nations saw South Africa mostly in the context of the Cold War. The Cold War was binary. Either you were for the U.S. and democracy, or you were for the Soviet Union and communism. The apartheid government of South Africa was a reliable partner against the Soviet Union and communism. The freedom struggle was always secondary to many Western leaders. To these leaders... South Africa's opposition to communism and its abundant natural resources were far more important than allowing black South Africans to fully participate in democracy. People would always say to me, it's amazing that he's not bitter. I would smile to myself about that. He resented that the West had turned its back on him. You can hear it in his voice. We went to Cuba. Castro welcomed us us with open hands. I am prepared to train your men. I am prepared to give you weapons. I am prepared to give you money. And uh, we went to Gaddafi, exactly the same thing. The West was not interested in us. 
they were supporting the apartheid regime, making it possible for them to have the resources to suppress the legitimate aspirations of the majority of the population. We fought, we stood on our feet, we fought back. Although we had no hope of defeating the enemy in the battlefield, but nevertheless, we fought back to keep the idea of liberation alive. Almost at the end of the struggle, the West now comes forward and says, do away with Castro, do away with Gaddafi. Uh, if you to have dealings with this man, you are going to forfeit our support. What support? When they did not care about our struggle all along, of course, they are now supporting us. They have changed from that attitude. They are fully supportive of our struggle now. And we are very grateful to them because they have got the resources uh, even greater than what uh, Gaddafi and uh, Cuba are able to give us. We are now benefiting from the fact that they have changed their attitude and their supportive struggle against uh, racial oppression and for democracy. Mandela is doing a careful balancing act here. He will never forget that the West did not help him when he needed it the most. He is grateful that the West has finally come around, but he isn't forsaking his old friends. He's a pragmatist. He certainly doesn't reject aid from the West because they rebuffed him before. That wouldn't be in his interest. At the same time, he still won't criticize Gaddafi and Castro. In all the times I talked to him, Mandela only had negative things to say about two people. Well, three people. The third was Govan Mbeki, who was on Robben Island with him, whom he found difficult and pretentious. I once mentioned to him a book that Mbeki had written before he was on the island. Mandela smiled at me and said, Have you tried to read it? Mbeki was one of those who accused Mandela of capitulating when he started negotiating with the government. It's ironic that it would be Govan Mbeki's son, Thabo, who would eventually succeed Mandela as president of South Africa. But Mandela was never one to hold a grudge, or at least not publicly. The two people about whom he had critical things to say were de Klerk and Budelezi. But even then, the criticism was mixed with praise. His relationship with de Klerk was the most important and difficult relationship of his political life. Together, they did change history. I was with them together on a couple of occasions, once for a two-hour private meeting in Cape Town. My strongest recollection of de Klerk was that he did not, for one moment, stop smoking while we were together. He used the glowing butt of one cigarette to light the next one. Mandela couldn't abide cigarette smoke, but he didn't say anything. That's called diplomacy. I could see how wary and nervous de Klerk was around Mandela. It was clear Mandela was the alpha in the relationship. For Mandela, the first meeting with de Klerk in 1990 set the tone going forward. Mandela was still at Victor Verster prison. De Klerk had become president a short time before after the previous president, P.W. Bota, suffered a stroke. The pressure for Mandela's release and the unbanning of the ANC was high and the world was watching. Authorities smuggled Mandela into de Klerk's residence through the garage. What I wanted to ask you 
is to get some of the detail behind your first meeting with de Klerk, what in a book is called color, that is anecdotal material, how it came about, what happened that day. If we could just go over that one more time. I would often try to explain to Mandela what I knew about how to put a book together. Even so, he found the process a little frustrating. But uh, the central issue which we discussed was uh, their five-year plan, which they had published, which contained uh, the concept of group rights, that uh, group rights uh, should be protected in any future dispensation, and that uh, that is how peace would be achieved. Not exactly color, and then... I told him that uh, I totally rejected that, and in support of my position, I referred to an article which was written by De Berger, which is an African newspaper, the mouthpiece of the National Party in the Cape, which said that um, it was written by the editor in the editor's column, just next to the editorial, and uh, in which he said that uh, the concept of group rights was uh, giving a uh, wrong image of the policy of the National Party because it was conceived as an attempt to bring uh, apartheid through the back door. And I said to Mr. de Klerk that if your own paper says that, then you can imagine what we say. This is going to discredit the whole effort by the National Party to bring about, uh, to help bring about democracy in this country. As ever, Mandela had done his homework. I was then tremendously impressed because he was immediately, immediately said, well, my aim here is no different than yours because in your memorandum to Peter Botha, you stress the question of the ANC and the government addressing the question of the fears of the whites in this country. In particular, that had the realization of the demand of democracy in this country on the basis of one person, one vote. Democracy sounds like a bland good, right? Who would be against democracy? Well, we're struggling with it in America at the moment. But to white South Africans then, democracy meant something very simple and scary that minority white rule would end. In a democratic election, one person, one vote, meant blacks would outnumber whites at the ballot box by eight or nine to one. That's why white politicians kept talking about group rights. Group rights meant that no one group would dominate another. In other words, the minority whites could not be dominated by the majority blacks. The fear by the whites is that this will lead to the domination of the whites by blacks. And uh, you then said the ANC and the government will have to address this question. And uh, that is what I, as the clerk, also have in mind. But if you don't want the concept uh, group rights, I'll I'll remove it. And uh, he was rather very good. I was tremendously impressed. Mandela always liked it when his adversaries agreed with him. We also discussed the question of uh, my release 
And uh, I then said to him, that is no use releasing me under the same condition uh, under which you arrested me. If you release me now without uh, bringing changes, I will do exactly what you arrested me for. And I pointed out that the best way to move ahead is to unban the ANC and other political organizations to leave the state of emergency and to release all political prisoners and to allow exiles to return. That discussion, of course, was inconclusive in that um, he never made any undertakings. But I put forward that point of view. It was more of an exploratory discussion between two political leaders who were meeting for the first time. But uh, the result of that meeting was that uh, I was able to write to our people to say I've met the clerk. And I think that uh, he is the type of leader we can um, conclude an agreement with. And um, that is how that meeting came place, uh, took place. De Klerk seemed to be a man Mandela could do business with. Mandela is echoing British Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher's famous line in 1984 about Mikhail Gorbachev. I like Mr. Gorbachev, Thatcher said. We can do business together. Perhaps Mandela was a little too impressed. Mandela's first impressions of de Klerk was that he, too, was a pragmatist, that he was not an ideologue, that he was open to reason and logic, unlike previous South African leaders. De Klerk was also a politician, something Mandela understood. Mandela understood something else that seems like a paradox. He knew he had to help de Klerk succeed. He knew they were dependent on each other's success. If de Klerk failed to win over whites, Mandela would also fail. When you were in Cairo, and that was in May, you also had a press conference. And in that press conference regarding South Africa, you, had, you said, we are prepared to consider a cessation of hostilities. With, and it was interpreted here as a, as a, as a kind of truce offer. What was behind that? Was that because relations with de Klerk were so good and there was relatively quietness in South Africa? No, we had already suspended. Uh, no, I'm sorry, no, no. I had already started negotiations with the government. And uh, it was therefore our duty as an organization to help create the climate whereby these negotiations would succeed and uh, to suspend hostilities was something that was taken, was thought of objectively. Of course, uh, the fact that uh, de Klerk was a man uh, who had come out, uh, was courageous uh, to start the reform process from the point of view of the government, uh, responding to us, but nevertheless to start the reform process, was something you know, which uh, we encouraged. And we wanted uh, to help to ensure that uh, his efforts succeed. And his efforts would succeed if he was able to go back to whites and to say, look at the fruits of the new policy of negotiations. We are talking to the enemy and uh, we have brought about a cessation of hostilities. And I felt that he would got more support from his own constituency. 
Mandela understood that as a politician, de Klerk needed something to show his own base and that he, Mandela, needed to give it to him. Mandela believed that he had to help get the white minority on board for a new South Africa to succeed. He spent a lot of time wooing whites. He posed for pictures with his old prison guards. He had tea with the widow of Hendrik Fervut, the architect of apartheid. He famously donned the uniform of the South African rugby team, the Springboks, green cap and all, and cheered them on. This is the story of the movie Invictus. Rugby was the sport of South African whites. He had deliberately learned about the game while in prison. He very publicly met with members of the white right wing. There were those in Mandela's own party who said he was spending too much time placating wealthy whites rather than boosting poor blacks. The then head of the ANC Youth League, Peter Makaba, who would chant, kill the boar, kill the farmer at his rallies, accused Mandela of pandering to whites. And you know who else did? Who was very often right at Makaba's side making the clenched fist salute? Winnie Nomzamo Mandela. But if that bothered Mandela, he didn't show it. Mandela wanted to have a real partner in de Klerk. That's obvious, even from listening to him. And at the start, he trusted de Klerk. Some said Mandela was naive in trusting de Klerk. I think he might even agree with that. Their relationship was turbulent. In December of 1991, during what were known as the Codisa negotiations over the future of the government, Mandela and de Klerk had come to an agreement that de Klerk would speak last. What wasn't communicated to Mandela was that de Klerk planned to be highly critical of the ANC. As Mandela listened to de Klerk's closing remarks, he became angrier and angrier. Organization, which remains committed to an armed struggle, cannot be fully trusted, cannot be trusted completely when it also commits itself to peacefully negotiated solutions. And when de Klerk had finished, Mandela strode to the front of the room and took the microphone. He spoke with cold fury. I am gravely concerned about the behavior of Mr. de Klerk. He has launched an attack on the African National Congress. And in doing so, he has been less than frank even the head of an illegitimate, discredited minority regime as his has certain moral standards to uphold. It was the closest to what I imagine Mandela sounded like in talking to the judge in the Ravonia trial or prison officials on the island. I suspect that Mandela's dressing down of de Klerk permanently alienated the white leader, who said as much in his own autobiography. He wrote that Mandela had publicly humiliated him. Politicians don't really recover from that. In 1992, de Klerk and the National Party decided to hold a referendum on ending apartheid. Of course, because apartheid was still in force, it was only for white voters. It was a way for de Klerk to try to marginalize his own right wing, those who wanted to keep apartheid. The yeses won with almost 70% of the vote. It was a triumph. Mandela had publicly opposed the referendum on the grounds that blacks could not vote. But privately, 
he very much hoped de Klerk would win. We do not want the whites to say to Mr. de Klerk, do not get involved in the peace process. And no vote would have been catastrophic. So although we're opposed to this, we're ahead at the same time to avoid the whites calling upon de Klerk to pull out of negotiations. For that reason, therefore, we called upon whites to support de Klerk. Right. To support the peace process, to return a yes vote, not to support de Klerk but to support the peace process. Mm-hmm. I then took a different tact with him. He seemed to make it into an election supporting him personally. Yeah, it's quiet. Uh, That's why he became sullen-headed. Yeah. He became sullen-headed after the uh, results really? of the referendum. Mm. Because he thought that people wanted him, it's not yes. that they wanted the Yeah, it's quiet. Process. Yes. That's interesting. That's one of the dangers of democracy. <laughs> Mandela always praised humility in other leaders. He saw it as a virtue, whether you had it or just pretended to have it. Swollen-headed is about as close as Mandela ever comes to actually insulting someone. But the closest Mandela ever came to breaking off his relationship with de Klerk was over what came to be known as the Third Force, a shadowy right-wing militia movement that seemed intent on driving the country to a racial civil war. He saw this as the greatest threat to a democratic election and a free South Africa. And he also believed that de Klerk knew more about what was happening than he let on. Mandela regarded this as weakness and treachery. In October, you were in Harare, and in an interview in Harare, you said that you perhaps had been too hasty in saying that de Klerk was a man of integrity and that the government was playing a double game. You were very, very harsh about uh, de Klerk around towards the end of 1991. Did you feel betrayed by him, or was that a strategy to undermine his credibility? I wouldn't uh, consciously undermine the credibility of a man with whom I am negotiating. Mm -hmm. But the reality was that uh, our people were dying, were being killed, mainly by the state security services. And uh, his inability to address the question angered me a great deal. And I felt, you know, it was time to speak out more frankly Mm -hmm. about what I thought of him in relation to his inability to address, address the question. Speak out, he did. But again, for better or worse, he was still tied to de Klerk. Any alternative to de Klerk would be worse. He would only be replaced by someone to his right. So it was necessary to work with him and sometimes prop him up. They were bound to each other, whether they liked it or not. And they didn't. Actually, that, uh, this is sort of a big question I'm about to ask about de Klerk. But would you say that if there's a spectrum, and on the one hand there's a man who who, for moral reasons, believes that apartheid was wrong and it must be reversed, versus a man who's an incrementalist, a political incrementalist, who just sees that he has to try to keep his people in power in the best way. Where does de Klerk fall on those, between those two? Oh, that's very difficult to say, because uh, when you're negotiating, you have to accept what a man says. Mm-hmm. He says apartheid has failed. He wants to bring about a non-racial society. We have no reason to doubt that, except that uh, we do not agree with him. 
when uh, he does things which seem to suggest that he wants to keep the National Party in power, even after it has lost an election. Mm -hmm. But uh, we must accept that he does want uh, democratic changes to be introduced in the country. Mm -hmm. This answer is a perfect illustration as to who Nelson Mandela was, how practical and hard-headed and straightforward he was. First, he rejects any psychologizing about de Klerk. He just doesn't see any point in it. Mandela is a what-you-see-is-what-you-get person. When you are negotiating, you have to accept what a man says. What is the alternative? To believe that he doesn't mean what he says? How do you negotiate with that? The second point is also beautifully practical. The only way you know if you can trust someone is to trust them. Then you'll find out. And that's what Mandela did. In the end, despite balking at almost every stage, de Klerk and the National Party held the first democratic election in South African history and helped create the first democratic constitution in South African history. And South Africa would have its first black democratic president and its last white apartheid president. In the years after he left office, Mandela was more gracious to de Klerk than de Klerk was to him. In his own autobiography, de Klerk depicts Mandela as a sort of communist apparatchik. Kind of crazy, I know. But de Klerk always insisted that apartheid was an idealistic policy that was poorly implemented. He never really apologized for it. That is, until he died. After his death in 2021, his foundation released a video of him repenting for what he had done. This is my last message addressed to the people of South Africa. I'm still often accused by critics that I in some way or another continue to justify apartheid or separate development, as we later prefer to call it. It is true that in my younger years, I defended separate development as I never liked the word apartheid. I did so when I was a member of parliament and I did so as I became a member of cabinet. Afterwards, on many occasions, I apologized for the pain and the indignity that apartheid has brought to persons, to persons of color in South Africa. Many believed me, but others didn't. It's not much of an apology, as apologies go. He doesn't so much as apologize as say he's apologized before. But then... Therefore, let me today, in this last message, repeat. I, without qualification, apologize for the pain and the hurt and the indignity and the damage that apartheid has done to black, brown and Indians in South Africa. De Klerk goes on to say his views changed in the early 1980s. It was as if I had a conversion and in my heart of hearts realized that apartheid was wrong. I realized that we had arrived at a place which was morally unjustifiable. De Klerk's final statement is 689 words long. 
He doesn't mention Mandela even once. But I wanted Mandela to talk personally about his relationship with de Klerk, but he didn't really do it. But over all this time with him negotiating, would you say that you have a... Uh, have there any, been any gestures of friendship between the two of you, any personal... Oh, the friendship has been there. Yeah. But we have not pulled punches when we believed right. that uh, one person has seen one of us had made a mistake. Yeah. We didn't pull punches. Mandela was the only one of the two who had actually been a boxer. He always seemed to have the ability, when remembering something, to put himself in that moment. He could be generous about de Klerk because he remembered being generous to him. He didn't let his final feelings influence his previous feelings. That's rare. He was able to do this when he talked about Winnie, too. It's a kind of generosity. On October 15, 1993, Mandela and de Klerk were jointly awarded the Nobel Peace Prize for, as the committee said, the peaceful termination of the apartheid regime and for laying the foundations for a new democratic South Africa. At the time, supporters of Mandela were unhappy that he had to share the award with de Klerk. But if Mandela felt that way, he never let on. If you look at pictures of the two of them receiving the prize, Mandela is beaming. De Klerk looks glum. The only other person I ever heard him criticize was Mangasutu Butelezi, the leader of the Nkata Freedom Party. While Mandela was negotiating with de Klerk, he believed Budelezi was trying to sabotage the larger peace. Mandela thought the combination of the Third Force and Budelezi's Nkata party would push the country into a civil war. Nkata was the self-appointed political party of the Zulu nation, and Budelezi was also the de facto leader of KwaZulu-Natal, one of the so-called Bantustans, or Black Homelands. Although there were many Zulu members of the ANC, Chief Latuli was a Zulu. The majority of Zulus in South Africa were members of Nkata and opposed to the ANC. Budalezi himself had once been a member of the ANC. In fact, he was a member of the ANC Youth League a few years after Mandela was. He too had gone to Fort Hare like Mandela, and he too was descended from a royal family. But he was a thorn in Mandela's side. He supported the apartheid government's opposition to sanctions. He was a hero to white conservatives who considered Mandela a communist. Mandela never really trusted him and thought he was secretly fomenting violence against the ANC. In January of 1991, you had a meeting with uh, Butelezi in Durban, where you signed a peace accord. Did you think that that was a, a, a rapprochement with with Budelezi, that things would be better now, or just... Well, uh, we took decisions which, if they had been carried out, would have put an end to the violence and uh, would also have improved relations and opened the public facilities at KwaZulu to everybody, mm-hmm. which is not the case. So we made progress, but uh, soon thereafter, he pulled out of the agreement. Mm-hmm. And when nothing else happened, when that agreement failed, I then phoned Mutulis and I suggested a second meeting. By the way, that first meeting was our initiative. Mm. I then phoned him again in April, and I went down to Durban to discuss with him. We met the whole day. 
again took decisions which, if they had been carried out, would have uh, put an end to the violence. But again, it was the first to repudiate, it, continued the tax on us. And uh, he had said on the agreements that were made that uh, he would uh, seek uh, this confirmation by his uh, organization in Qatar. But he never came back to me after that. The only way you can tell whether to trust someone is to trust them. And Mandela would say he found out that he couldn't trust Budalese. He detested it when people did not stand by their word. So you wouldn't describe uh, him as a man of integrity, would you? No, I don't. Um, you don't want to say that. Then. I wouldn't really discuss the question at all. All that I want to say is that uh, he has uh, been uh, very much intransigent. There's never reply to that. Why you prefer to meet me and not to meet me with other leaders? Why do you think? I do not know. I, I do not know. He's the best person, you see, to answer that question. Mm-hmm. But I just don't see the value of that. I don't see it. Uh, I think um, I think the ANC needs a psychologist to interpret Brutal Lazy, rather. <laughs> because it seems as though it, uh, he's operating from a sense of uh, inferiority and yeah, needs not, some no, that's true. parity with you per, for his own person, personal reasons. Yes, yeah, quite. Yes, that's true. I know it sounds like I'm inserting my own opinion here, but the idea of leaders who are confident versus leaders who are insecure is a theme for Mandela going back 40 years. When I interviewed Walter Sisulu about Mandela, Walter talked forcefully about how confident Mandela was as a person and how dangerous personally insecure leaders were. Mandela said of Budalese, he's very much intransigent. Again, that's about as close as Mandela comes to saying someone is a bad person. But he's always playing a long game. He doesn't see any point in burning bridges. And here's why. After the 1994 election, when Mandela was elected president of South Africa, Mandela invited Budalese to join the new government of national unity as the Minister of Home Affairs, a position Budalese accepted and held until 2004. This was a typical act of inclusion by Mandela. He was a believer in the famous line from The Godfather, keep your friends close, but your enemies closer. But for the people of Soweto, the bloodshed was not yet over. Everyday train commuters now became the target of murder and violence as the country, fueled by third force manipulation, spiraled into the bloodiest phase of internecine political violence ever experienced. Station platforms were attacked, and on Soweto trains, gangs of men, armed with shotguns, pangas, and knives, moved from carriage to carriage, hacking, stabbing, shooting, killing or wounding everyone in their path. Now, at at this time, again, there was the, there's still the extraordinary violence and factional fighting. You know, on one period in August, 500 people lost their lives in 10 days, and the government declared 27 townships unrest areas. And this is when you first, when you first mentioned um, in a speech that there was a hidden hand in the violence. What was your sense of uh, uh, the evolution of your notion of a third force working to promote violence? Because then that became an issue that was discussed 
very widely about the notion of a third force. Well, it was clear that uh, something was happening because uh, there was uh, an unacceptable high incidence of violence in which people were killed. And uh, the arrest and convictions, you see, were few and far between. And uh, it was clear that uh, there was connivance on the part of the security forces. And some of the incidents that indicated that uh, uh, the police themselves were involved, the police, the army. Because uh, if you went uh, to the townships, talked to the people there, they had no doubt that uh, the police uh, highly instrumental in this. The rising tide of violence made Mandela reconsider his agreement to suspend the armed struggle. Maybe there would be no peaceful end to apartheid. Maybe apartheid would only end at the barrel of a gun. He felt he couldn't stand by and watch his people being slaughtered. You also said in September that because of the violence, the violence might necessitate a return to the armed struggle. Was that something uh, that you had thought long and hard about? And I assume it was something that would, would have... No, it was scared. a serious observation yeah. based on what was going on. I know how close Mandela felt South Africa had come to an outright civil war. I know because a few years later, he talked to me about wanting to do a sequel to Long Walk to Freedom, about how the country had been on the brink of a bloodbath. But I'm getting ahead of myself here. I hadn't started to write the book yet. I knew I had to. But the story wasn't finished. His story wasn't finished. I felt like I was leaving in the middle of it, and I didn't want to say goodbye to him or to Mary, but I did. 